well. A few things I want to make sure you are aware of. Um, first is that uh, we do not, as it's the fifth Sunday, so we do not have a children's church and nursery this morning, uh, but, which is fine. We love having kids in the service, uh, but if you, are, if you are aware of anybody that comes in with any kids, uh, feel free to let them know this is what's going on and that we do have bags in the back of the sanctuary on the table there. Uh, just to give something to kids uh, to help sort of hopefully uh, ease uh, your time uh, this morning. Uh, secondly is that on May 13th, uh, on a Saturday, we will have a spring workday here at the church. So it's a great opportunity for us to be able to, uh, to, to steward well the, the responsibilities that God has given to us in just maintaining our ground and facilities here in the church uh, the, the time will begin with a continental breakfast at 8 to 9, and then at 9 we'll start the work. It'll go to about 12.30. Uh, even if you cannot make the entire time, if you can only just devote an hour of your time, that's, uh, that's fine. We'll take it. Uh, we'd, be, we'd love to be able to have as much help as we can get for that day. And then thirdly, on May the 21st, which is a Sunday, we will have a uh, cookout here at the church. So we'll serve hot dogs and burgers at the same time. We want to also celebrate uh, with the Mandolas who are expecting their baby later on in this year, so it'll be a part of a baby shower as well. So more information should be in your bulletin um, that hopefully you received on your way in. So with that, all that being said, let me read to us our call to worship, which is found in Psalm 63, beginning at verse 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Why do we read a call to worship on Sunday mornings? One, because I think it's good to begin with the Word of God, but also because a call to worship is intending to call God's people into God's presence. Because when we do meet, we must come and we must believe that God is certainly intending to meet with us on Sunday mornings, that his presence is with the gathered church wherever they meet. And it's intended to focus our, our eyes, our distracted eyes, to behold the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us do that this morning. Let us draw near to the Lord, draw near his presence, and let us worship the Lord and seek him in the assembly of the saints. Let's stand together and worship God through song this morning. Part of our great joy as believers is to preach the gospel of our good, amazing, sovereign Lord. So let's pray that his kingdom would come as we get that opportunity with Let Your Kingdom Come.
told the Israelites to be to be still. He will fight for them. They need only be still. And this song is based on Psalms 42. It's called Lord from Sorrows Deep I Call. I'm going to sing the first verse in the chorus and I invite you to listen to the words to really pray them and then we'll repeat that and y'all can join in.
Amen. Hopefully you were blessed as I was in just singing that last song. Thank you, Aaron, for introducing us to that song. It's great to sing of God of our salvation. Praise God. I want to, before we transition to time of prayer, um, there's a, actually quite a number of things to, to pray for, and we could spend hours just praying for many of the things that people um, the church who are sick right now, we're recovering from different things, um, and so we are going to pray for specific people in the life of our church, but there's one thing also I want to pray for, um, something actually just, I just became aware of just a couple days ago, um, something actually happening in Boston right now as we speak, and maybe you've already heard of it, but um, right now there's a three-day conference called the, the, the Satan Con, or Satan Conference, um, and People who adhere to this movement, they will say that there's about worldwide about 700,000 members, and this is expected to be the the largest uh, gathering of people who adhere to this movement in Boston right now. Um, and uh, they claim, or they say that they are different than uh, the Church of of Satan. So they don't say that they say that they don't worship the the, the Satan of the Bible. Um, but they do say that they, they venerate, but does not, they do not worship the allegorical Satan described in Paradise Lost, which to me is the same thing. Right, if you've, Paradise Lost, written, an epic poem written by John Milton, it's essentially the story of the fall of mankind. 
Uh, and so there's a lot of fictional elements in this story, but it's based on the actual Genesis 3 story of Satan and the deceiving of Adam and Eve, which then led to the transgression of God's command, which then led to the consequences of the curse in all creation and the plunging of man in sin. And you can't necessarily say that you venerate something but not worship it. I mean, if you venerate something, you're sort of respecting, you're revering it, which is a form of worship, especially when you are coming together under the banner or under the name of of a particular individual. But they, what they, I guess, what they appreciate or what they, I guess, admire by this allegorical scene in Paradise Lost is that this person or this character is a defender of personal sovereignty, they would say, against the dictates of religious authority. Well, that sounds exactly like the Satan of the Bible. The character of Satan in the Paradise Lost is a charismatic, courageous, witty, convincing, and has this indomitable will. And this is also the same character in the story that says, better to reign in hell than to serve in heaven. So in my mind, it's not the same, it's not any different person. It's the same person. It's the same saying of the Bible. And so I do want to take some time to pray this morning, not for the conference, but in a way against this conference and and what it stands, because this is a delusion of Satan. Uh, Satan is more than pleased and is applauding right now that what's going on in Boston, even if people think that they are not worshiping the biblical Satan, he knows, he's, he well knows that they actually are. And so this is very much a delusion of Satan himself. And so we want to join this morning and many churches who are gathering this morning and many churches in Boston right now that are gathering and worshiping the Lord and praying also. We want to join them because Satan hates the gathered church. Satan does not like anything that we do on Sunday mornings. In fact, I actually look forward on Sunday mornings to angering Satan. Through prayers, through worshiping with the saints, through the preached word of God. It's like, yes, absolutely, let's go and let's make Satan angry this morning. Because every time the church gathers on Sunday mornings, it is a reminder to him that he's already been defeated at the cross. And so, if you would, bow your heads with me and let us pray to the Lord. Great God of highest heaven, you came down and condescended to us, came down to the lower regions of the earth, and you were clothed with the frailness of humanity, and you lived amongst man, and you went about healing and casting out demons, waging war against the dominion of Satan, and you came in also to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. And you went to the cross And you died on that cross. And what may have at first looked like the defeat of the power of God, instead what we see three days later is that the power of God reigned over death as Jesus, the Son of God, rose again from the dead. And through the resurrection, 
declared that he was victorious, not only over sin and death, but also over Satan himself. So, Lord, we come before you this morning proclaiming that our God is great, that our God is the God of our salvation, that our God has saved us from our sins, has saved us from being imprisoned by our sins, and has saved us from being imprisoned in, by the devil himself. You have plundered, you have chained the strong man, and you have plundered his house. And we are here this morning because of your great work on the cross. Father, your word tells us that the God of this world, which is alluding to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Satan right now is engaged in full-out warfare in in promoting and spreading an incredible delusion upon the world, including deceiving people into the worship of him. Father, we pray that you would please bring down the schemes of the devil, that you would cause people in this movement to see reality, to see the truth. Lord, that they would not attach themselves to a movement that prides itself in usurping authority. Lord, for there is no greater authority than your authority. Father, we pray that you would illumine eyes to see and open minds to understand the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ, that you would call many from this movement to turn to the God of salvation, that they would turn from repentance or from, turn from sin to the God, the glorious God of the Scriptures. Father, we pray that many others may not be deluded by this illusion, but that they might also come to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray for many churches gathered there in Boston. Lord, would you encourage them? Would you make the light of the gospel shine brilliantly as they meet together? We pray, Father, that you would encourage them. And Father, we pray that you would dissolve this movement, bring it to nothing, and that you would take many and turn their hearts to Jesus Christ. Father, there are, there are many also in our church, who, who are sick, who are recovering from surgeries. Father, Father, we pray for them. We pray that your grace would continue to sustain them. We pray for a swift recovery, that you would heal those who are sick, restore them to good health. We pray for those who are still in some measure of pain and weakness, that you would bring them and restore them to strength. Father, we thank you for, for, for Brenda's successful surgery and that you would help her, Lord, to continue to recover. 
Father, we pray for for Rhonda Stevens and her brother as they are faced with difficult decisions with regards to their dad and the state of his health right now. Would you help them and find unity and give them wisdom? We pray for her dad and keep him encouraged in looking to Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of his faith. Father, we thank you that uh, the Brother Bill's Bridgewood's surgery went well this week and that he can be with us this morning. Father, we pray that you would continue to encourage the Smith household, Lord, continue to help them to set their faces to Jesus Christ, who is their faithful and merciful high priest who sympathizes with their weaknesses and is interceding right now in the heavens. Lord, encourage them in their faith. Lord, give strength to Jean each and every day. Father, we pray that she might continue to, even in this trying of seasons, that her lips might continue to sing your praises for the God who is the God of her salvation. Lord, encourage them the promises of the gospel. Father, as we continue to meet this morning, as we continue to come together and worship and pray and sit under your priest's word, Father, we pray that this would make a, a loud declaration of the victory of Jesus Christ on the cross. We pray that this would be a powerful reminder to the devil that he has been defeated and that there is nothing that he can do to prevent our salvation to come to full fruition at the second coming of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, whenever that time might come. Help us to continue to declare your victory boldly, winsomely, and lovingly to all those around us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please turn with me to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, is our text this morning. chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. And as they were speaking to the people, that is Peter and John, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening, But many of those who had heard the word or heard the gospel believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, help us to continue to fix our eyes on Christ. Lord, help us to receive your word, 
including myself, with all humility. We pray that by your power of your spirit that you might work and massage your word into our hearts. Lord, and cause your word to bear fruit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me take you to a chapter in church history, to a moment that bears some resemblance to what's going on here in chapter 4 in the book of Acts. Actually, that isn't too long ago to where I want to take you, and that is the 1720s. It was the 1720s, between 1720s and 1760s, that the New England colonies experienced a great, or the, its first great awakening. And depending on who you ask, revivals, awakenings can be sort of synonymous terms, meaning the same thing, but the way I understand it, revivals can mean like when there's uh, a sort of a revival of religion, where there's like sort of a, an awakening or a sort of a revival, I guess, a revival of or, or sort of from coming from sort of a dead religion or nominal Christianity to a Christianity that is more fervent and alive and, and zealous for the things of the Lord. Awakenings, on the other hand, the way I understand it is when there is a great movement of the Spirit and many who do not, did not previously know the Lord Jesus Christ come to understand and comprehend the gospel and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. George Whitfield is understood to be sort of the great evangelist of the First Great Awakening, and Jonathan Edwards is understood to be the great theologian of the First Great Awakening. In God Glorified in the Work of Redemption, which was Jonathan Edwards' first sermon to be published, in that sermon he declared that God is glorified in the work of redemption in this, that there appears in it so absolute and universal dependence of the redeemed on God. So in other words, he's saying that salvation belongs to God and God alone. It was the preaching of George Whitfield and also the preaching of Jonathan Edwards that sort of began to spark a revival around New England. Again, between 1720 and 1760s, there's sort of these different outbreaks of great, this great awakening. And during that time, which is what God used to spark another movement of his spirit, was a sermon delivered by Jonathan Edwards, his, probably his most famous and most widely read sermon, which many of you have heard before, perhaps, and that is, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And it's unfortunate because it is because of that sermon that Jonathan Edwards today is, has sort of developed this bad rep of being sort of a fire and brimstone preacher, which is further, furthest from the truth. In that sermon, Jonathan Edwards equally matched his imagery of judgment with imagery of redemption. In that sermon, he says that Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door, crying and calling with a loud voice to poor sinners. Awakenings certainly had its people who loved it, cheered it on, right? You expect that. There are some who are pretty neutral about it, even within the church, and even within the church, and especially outside of church, right? Great Awakenings, such as the first Great Awakening, also had its opponents as well. Peter and John and John in Acts chapter 3, they went, and Peter preached the gospel there in the temple, 
And then what we get to see here is, is a great awakening, a great movement of God in bringing unbelievers to turn to faith in faith to Jesus Christ as Savior. And as we immediately see in chapter 4, is that this great awakening was not without its opponents, which leads firstly to an inedible confrontation. Jesus warns us in the Gospels to not be surprised when there is resistance or confrontation or even persecution on the count of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in John 16, 2, warning his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogue. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They think they're doing some kind of service to the Lord and persecuting God's people. He warns that they will put you out of the synagogue. They'll put you out of your social circles. Those who are opponents of the gospel might put you out of your workplace because you're a follower of Jesus Christ. John 15, 19, Jesus continues and says, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus says that believing in the gospel and receiving salvation is likened to being taken out of the world and, bring, and brought into the kingdom of the beloved son. So then... He says, it is no surprise, it should be of no surprise when you who have been taken out of the world receives or is confronted with opposition by the world because the world recognizes that you are no longer a part of it. Indeed, Paul says in 2 Timothy 3 that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. So gospel proclamation and gospel living will inevitably attract confrontation if you live out the gospel long enough because you are no longer part of the world. So that if you want to avoid confrontation, if you want to avoid being hated, if you want to avoid the tension, the awkwardness that comes with being a believer and living out as a believer and sharing the gospel, then all you got to do is just be like the rest of the world. Probably one of the most liked people in all the planet are ice cream salesmen. Everybody loves an ice cream salesman because once you hear the little jingle coming around the corner, everybody goes because they want ice cream. They want to get their children ice cream. My wife oftentimes reminds me of this. Ice cream salesmen are liked by everybody until, of course, they run out of ice cream. But if you want to avoid confrontation, if you want to be liked by the rest of the world, then you'll be sort of like an ice cream salesman and you'll try to please everybody and you'll try to do what everybody wants you to do and you want to be like the rest of the world. But the Lord Jesus calls us to something different. He does not call us to be sort of these ice cream Christians. But if you want to be more like Christ, then Jesus says, then expect to have some kind of confrontation at different points in your life. But even as Jesus talks about these, these, this expectation of confrontation and tension and persecution, 
it is not, he doesn't do so without also providing his people without, with some encouragement. There's at least three encouragements that he says in that context of John 15, 16 and talking about persecution and confrontation. He says there that he shares these things with his people in order to keep you and I from falling away. In other words, God's means of keeping you and I tethered to Jesus Christ is by Jesus forewarning us that these things are to be expected. Secondly, in that context of John 15, 16, Jesus says that he also provides the helper, that helper being the Holy Spirit of God. He is the comforter. He's the one who assists us, who helps us in our weaknesses, so that when we experience these difficult things and tension in our lives on account of the gospel, that we don't do so alone, but we have someone who is there with us, namely the Spirit of God. And then thirdly, Jesus also assures his people that those who are sorrowful because of the persecution or tensions or confrontation that they endure in this life, that their sorrow will one day for sure turn into joy. The promise of the gospel is that the rivering tears of sorrow will one day be turned into rivering tears of joy. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. And certainly the apostles, because they have the Spirit of God, and the part of the Spirit of God is to remind believers of the teachings of Jesus Christ, coming then head-to-head with the religious authorities, probably thought of these things as this was happening. They immediately upon preaching the gospel, confronted with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious sect at that time. Interestingly, they actually traced their origins all the way back to Zadok, who was the high priest under the reign of King Solomon. They were an elite class, part of the aristocracy. They had powerful connections with the Romans, and they were interested in doing so, in keeping those relationships for their own political and economic interests. And because of these things, they were often disliked by common man. The Pharisees were different. The Pharisees at least were mostly well-liked by the common man because the Pharisees related to them. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were sort of like the top of the class, and almost nobody sort of resonated with them, and they could not resonate with the common man. In fact, they actually many times had to work closely with the Pharisees because they knew that the Pharisees oftentimes had the heart of the people, which the Sadducees did not have. And their doctrine was also very different, certainly different from New Testament teaching, and many of those things were also different from the Pharisees as well. The Sadducees believed or were, very, were extremely self-sufficient, so they would have hated Romans chapter 8, which speaks of the sovereignty of God and salvation. They emphasized man's responsibility and his will more so than the sovereignty of God. They denied, as many of you know, the resurrection of the dead. They denied also the afterlife. They denied also the spiritual realm, that there is any such thing as angels and demons. So for them, this life was it. 
So I guess believing in it is sort of kind of uh, annihilation, annihilationism. I don't know if I'm saying that right. But essentially, that's after the, you depart from this world, there's no going anywhere else. You're just done, dead. You, don't, you cease to exist. So these are the individuals. This is the group, rather, that they come head-to-head -head with as they're preaching the gospel. And they are persecuted, secondly, because of teaching and its content. They're persecuted because they're teaching and because of the content of their teaching. So they were teaching. They're in there, in the temple, something that the Sadducees oversaw, and they see these, these commoners teaching the crowds when they, I mean, they're the Levites. They're educated. They're trained. They have, they've received instruction and mentorship through rabbis. Right, so they see these men and they might ask, well, who are you to teach? What are your credentials? Who's your rabbi? Where's your diploma? Where's your certificate? Right, even later on, as we continue through Acts chapter 4, they're going to also realize that these are, they're perplexed by these men, by Peter and John, because they're uneducated. So, they don't like what they're doing because they're teaching. They don't have authority to teach in their minds. And also because of the content of their teaching. What are they teaching? They're teaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That there is a resurrection for those who believe in Jesus Christ. And I don't think this is the only thing that they're teaching, but I think Luke is making a point in drawing this out because this is what differentiated their teaching from the teachings of the Sadducees. Because again, Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection much less would they believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead. But this is exactly what they're teaching, that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead, and they would also go on to teach, well, what does it mean for everybody else? What does it mean for you and I? It means that we also can experience the resurrection from the dead as well. Right, that is the great hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You can't preach the biblical gospel and leave out the resurrection. Right, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? It is the resurrection that shows us, that comforts us, that encourages us that Christ did indeed pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. But they would go on to teach that there is a God who, who resurrects people from the dead. Paul will also teach us in 1 Corinthians that the resurrection of Jesus Christ means everything. Because if Jesus Christ isn't resurrected, then there is no guarantee that you and I as believers would be resurrected. And if there is no resurrection, then our hope is only contained in this life. And that means that we ought to just live it up, do whatever we want, because at the end of the day, nothing really matters. But it is the resurrection that gives meaning to everything that we do, whether it is cooking, whether it is cleaning, whether it's cleaning or taking care of children, whether it is going to work, whether it's engaging in some kind of hobby, whether it is engaging with unbelievers or neighbors or believers, that whatever it is you do, that it means something because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it also means then, because there is a resurrection from the dead, that there is a glorious outcome for those who believe in Jesus Christ as Savior, they have the guarantee of a place in heaven, a place where tears of joy are rivering down the faces of the resurrected. So certainly, 
Peter and John would be preaching of the great judgment of God, very much like Jonathan Edwards did, and talking about sinners in the hands of an angry God, but it wasn't to the neglect of preaching the great truths and promises of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right, that there is salvation in Jesus' name, that you can be saved from the judgment that your sins deserve, that there is a glorious outcome if you believe in Jesus Christ, that there is only things to be gained by believing in Christ Jesus as Savior. So because of their teaching and their content, they faced opposition, they were persecuted, they were arrested. And so from this, summarized, condensed interaction between Peter and John and the Sadducees, what we see here thirdly is the magnetism of the gospel. The gospel has this magnetic effect and it, and it pulls from two different directions. From one direction, as Jesus warned, it draws persecution. It can draw tension. It can draw confrontation. And it's not long before they experience this persecution. First, they're preaching the gospel, right? And Pentecost, we saw that before. And so that would have attracted the, the attention of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees. And they're probably like, well, it's just nothing. Ah, it's, just, it's a little bit concerning, but it, it, it's, it's the first time. This is probably going to die out, whatever. But then they see it happening a second time. Right? First time, 3,000 people, it says, were saved. And now this time, 5,000. And that's just counting the men. So if you count the women, it's probably double that number. So now they're getting worried. Now they're getting panicky. All right, now we need to do something. The first time, all right, that was a little concerning, but now we're really concerned. So it's not long before the apostles of Jesus Christ are confronted with this persecution, this confrontation. Because the gospel, the gospel aggravates. The gospel annoys, as it says here. They were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus. Again, Jesus doesn't, isn't shy about this in the gospels. He warns us about these things. The gospel does do these things. It offends, it aggravates, and it's for many different reasons. But I think one of the main reasons, one of the overarching reasons why the gospel tends to offend and aggravate people, and even to the point of annoying people, it is because the gospel threatens something. It threatens something that people enjoy or love or attach to. Right? When there's something you're attached to, something that you value, something that you treasure, and something outside of you comes and threatens to take it away, we don't respond very well. If anything, we'll try to be as protective about it as we can. We'll get fearful, we'll get anxious, and we might even go on an offensive. So when the gospel is proclaimed, oftentimes people feel a sense, though they may not admit it, a sense of anxiety or dread because the gospel threatens to take away something that most people, that something that people are attached to. John 11:48 to the religious teachers felt this, this, these same feelings 
an account of the gospel. It says if we let him, Jesus, go on like this, everyone will believe in him, in John eleven forty eight, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They were afraid of losing their place amongst the crowds, amongst the people, their, their prestige, their honor amongst the people. John 12, it tells us, the religious teachers, that they were shy, that many of them were believing in Jesus, but they were shy about it because they loved the glory of men more than the glory that comes from God. In other words, the gospel threatened their attachment to man's prestige and honor and praise. In Acts chapter 19, when the heathen are confronted with the gospel, they go on the offensive because they, their livelihood is threatened, because their livelihood is based on creating idols of a false god. But when people hear the gospel and believe, well, they're fearful, well, we might lose our income here because these people are preaching this gospel that is contrary to what we believe. And not only that, but our great goddess, Artemis, will lose her position if we continue to let these Christians go on in this way. So they become fearful. Their livelihood is threatened. And their attachment to this God is threatened. The gospel tends to offend and aggravate because people love the world and the things of the world. They love their status. They love their lusts. They love material possessions. They love their security that comes from the world and the things that they can be in control of. And so when the gospel says that you have to be able to, you have to be willing to give that up in order to follow Jesus, not everybody, but in some cases, the response is resistance. Even when it comes to government as well. Government can, sees the gospel as threatening as well. Because what does the gospel teach? The gospel teaches that there is a greater authority than the, than the government of men. So when you have a gospel being proclaimed that says that there is a greater authority, then government can see God as sort of their enemy and competing for that same kind of authority in the lives of men. But sharing and proclaiming the biblical gospel cannot help but offend. It's not that we intend to offend anybody. It's just telling the truth can offend sometimes. But we don't want to be sort of a terrible doctor who recognizes something is wrong with you and then lies to you and says everything is fine. That would be guilty of malpractice. But we don't want to be found by God to be guilty of malpractice. We are called to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. God making his appeal through us to the world to be reconciled to God. So we want to be able to preach the biblical gospel and not water it down, and not lighten the gospel in order to it, for it to be more pleasing to the ears of men. So the gospel pulls in that kind of direction, from that direction, but also pulls from the opposite direction, and that is it draws people to salvation. Which is what we see in verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So even though... Peter and John were persecuted, they were arrested, the gospel still had its effect. It still was 
bringing people into salvation. And in this way, we see another awakening happening in the early days of the, first, of the church. God is drawing people to salvation, and that is the magnetism of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word is unbound, though the apostles were bound. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2.8, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as priest in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. The gospel will have its effect according to the will of the Lord, that even if its proclaimers are bound and imprisoned, as long as the church continues to exist, which it will because it has the authority of God, long as the church continues to proclaim the gospel, the gospel will still have its effect. It will still draw people to salvation. Because God has created the gospel to have this magnetizing kind of effect. There are several different ways that you can demagnetize a magnet. You can expose it to the hot temperature, you can just drop it on the ground and the impact might decrease its magnetism. You can also hammer it, and that can weaken its magnetism. But when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel will never lose its magnetism. No matter how high you turn up the furnace of persecution, the power of the gospel will never be weakened. No matter how many times you might say you might consider yourself a sort of like dropping the ball, like I share the gospel and I feel like oh, I kind of missed it, I... I didn't quite share this part, or I feel like I maybe could have said this clearly. But the power of the gospel is not embedded in your ability to be able to say it eloquently. The power of the gospel is in the power, and it's in its own has its own power. So even we cannot weaken the power of the gospel. And no matter how hard religious authorities or political authorities might hammer the gospel with law and regulations and even threats. You cannot imprison the gospel of Jesus Christ and diminish its strength. Which that means that a small church furnished with a weapon of the gospel is certainly more powerful than the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and certainly stronger than the power of the devil. The priest Gamaliel, I think, was incredibly wise he said in Acts 5.33, again, the apostles were preaching the gospel. He says, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do to these men. For before these days, Theodos rose up claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them, 
you might even be found opposing God. Let him alone. If this is a movement of man, just watch. It'll come to nothing. Just like every other movement of man in the history of the world has always come to nothing. Right, but this is, if this is something generated by God, authored by God, backed by God, then you might be found to be opposing God himself and persecuting his people. So it is with the church and the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone who would confront or even oppose the gospel that we share is essentially not opposing us, but ultimately they're opposing the Lord. And the reason why the church still stands today is because this is of God. And there's a reason why the church will continue to stand no matter if furnace of persecution is, is turned up, it will continue to stand because this is, originates in God and is propelled forward by God and is backed by God. So then, fourth and lastly, let us be unafraid to be magnetic. The word of God is unbound. The word of God is powerful. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The power is not in you and I. The power is in the gospel. But the power of the gospel comes when it is proclaimed, not when it is shut up, not when it is contained, but when it is proclaimed. 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul says, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God makes his appeal to the world to be reconciled to him through his people as they share the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when we share, this is God's appeal working through us that the individual might be reconciled to God by trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. But there is no making an appeal. God does not make his appeal through us when we are silent. And the very idea here of appealing and imploring is the idea of pleading and pegging. Many of us perhaps are quite ready to share the gospel, but how many of us are ready to peg and plead people to believe in Jesus Christ as Savior? Can we be that earnest? Can we plead people around us trust in Christ? To have the same kind of affections that Jesus had when he told his disciples that he desires for them to be with him where he is to see his glory. Can we work in our affections and pleading to people, I want you to be where I am going. I want you to see it for yourself. I want you to be there. I want you to be saved. Won't you come to Christ? Won't you be saved? How are you doing in your prayers? Are you praying for the lost? Are you praying for our believers? And are you 
earnest? Are you going before the throne of grace and earnestly begging and pleading the Lord, God, please save. God, please save. Would you be willing to be that kind of an uncomfortable and awkward neighbor who continues to share the gospel until they're told to to desist? Are you willing to be that awkward and uncomfortable neighbor who continues to encourage or to invite people to just come to service? So one this is a great parable. I think it's in is it Luke. I think it's in Luke 11 where um, where Jesus is talking about the, uh, the 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 person who had guests come in the middle of the night, and so he goes to his neighbor's house and he continues to knock. I need some food. Can you help me out? I'm paraphrasing here, of course. And he won't open the door because he says, it's, it's late, I'm sleeping, my family is sleeping, and he keeps knocking. And finally, he opens the door and gives him what he needs. And Jesus says, he opens the door not because he's his friend, but because of his neighbor's impudence. Because he keeps annoying the neighbor. I mean, would we, would we be willing to be that kind of annoying? Hey, come to church. Hey, come, 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 come because we want you to be saved. Come, because we want you to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, the power of salvation is not in you. It's in the gospel. So that if somebody comes, that you invited, you know, and they leave and not saved, but you shouldn't feel guilty about it. In a way, you can sort of dust your hands. That doesn't mean that you stop sharing the gospel with that person. The power is in the gospel. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. Your job and mine is not to get anyone saved. Your job and my job is simply just to share and proclaim and invite, to beg, to plead people to come to Christ. I think something that might encourage us and further help us Ensuring the gospel of Jesus Christ is to meditate on the glories of heaven. Think about heaven. Certainly we are called to warn unbelievers of the great judgment that is coming on account of their sins. But let us also be evangelists of the glories of heaven. Let us proclaim people to people the great things that await those who trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. Let us preach about the God who blesses his people, who blessed them even in this day by receiving the Spirit of God, by the Lord graciously giving us these small appetizers in this life that are intended to whet our appetites for the glories of heaven. Like a person who fixes their mind on a subject of their passion will speak excitedly about his subject, so the Christian who meditates on the glories of heaven cannot help but herald that heaven with greater joy and with greater boldness. Let us be glad, sharers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And certainly the magnetism of the gospel in our lives can become weakened over time. So how do you strengthen that that magnetism? They say that if you want to increase the strength of a magnet, then you might rub it against a stronger magnet. Or just 
hit it with a stronger magnet. And the impact over time should increase the strength of the weaker magnet. What we need is to continue to so to speak, be hit with the gospel, be hit with the glories of heaven. Think, meditate, relish on the glories of the gospel, relish on the great salvation that you have in Jesus Christ. Work on restoring the joy of your salvation so that you might be more encouraged and equipped to proclaim this gospel to others. Rub shoulders with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ Talk about the gospel. Talk about the salvation you have in Jesus Christ. God has given to the church an incredible treasure, and that is a treasure of the gospel. But it is also a treasure that is intended to be shared, not to be contained. Man might fear losing a great deal of things that they are attached to in this life, Hence the why at times, not always, but might re- resist the gospel. But let us proclaim to them also the things that are of gain that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing but gain. There's nothing but reward. Let me leave you with this. To hopefully start some the gears of your mind and thinking about heaven. Jonathan Edwards once said, to go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any, or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. Let's pray. Father, we... As sinners saved by your grace, Lord, we understand and we know the judgment that our sins deserve. Father, we want to increase our understanding of the gospel, our need for this salvation. God, but we also desire to better comprehend the great joys of the Christian life the great joys of heaven, the great joys of the rewards that await those who are in Christ. Lord, help us to work in our own hearts that we might be that much more animated and excited and joy-filled at the thought of heaven, this eternal Eden, this paradise that awaits for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, and in meditating on these things. Lord, warm the furnace of our hearts so that we might be more emblazoned by the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
so that we might then in turn, hopefully prayerfully by the power of your spirit, be that much more equipped to go and share the gospel, warning every man, but also compelling every man to come to Christ and receive the great joy that there is in knowing Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. Not only do we pray that you might turn us into evangelists of the gospel, but Lord, also turn us into joy-filled evangelists of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, increase our heart's desire to see a great movement of your Spirit that we might be able, Lord, we pray, we ask, we plead, Lord, that you would allow our eyes to see your glorious salvation, that we might see our loved ones, that we might see our friends, that we might see our neighbors, that we might see co-workers, that we might see strangers to us come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, do this great work. Do a great work in us and increase our faith in the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final song, O Church, Arise. Yes.
you this this benediction receive this benediction which comes from 1 Corinthians 15:58 Therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain including laboring in the proclaiming of the gospel of Jesus Christ amen it's a joy to be with you and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with you you are dismissed